want to buy one of your fine ponies. Seventy-five percent of our people living below the poverty line. Redbow's got a bunch of radicals on the loose up there. We need him off that reservation until the vote is in. Putting his sister behind bars was our best shot. We gotta go to Santa Fe. Can I count on you? Or what? What they may mess up. We are Cheyenne. I'm in the mood to tear it up. I'm in my pride Let's go have a talk, Red Bull. I just can't tear yeah. it up. a sign. The time has come for me to get a medicine. We are gathering power. Buddy Red Bull. Gilbert. First day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a northern greasy knee. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two cups of coffee and a northern greasy knee. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me three hand drums, two cups of coffee and a northern greasy My true love sent to me Four fries and gravy Three hand drums Two cups of coffee And a northern greasy knee On the fifth day of Christmas My true love sent to me Five golden leads Four fries and gravy Three hand drums Two cups of coffee And a northern greasy Sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Six Indian tacos, five golden leads Four fries and gravy, three hand drums Two cups of coffee and a northern greasy On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Seven wives are cooking, six Indian tacos, five golden leads and gravy, three hand drums, two cups of coffee, and a northern greasy tea. On the eighth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me eight grapes of sweetgrass, seven wives of cooking, six Indian tacos, five golden leaves, four fries and gravy, three hand drums, two cups of coffee, and a northern greasy tea. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Nine ladies singing, eight braids of sweetgrass Seven wines are cooking, six Indian tacos Five golden leaves, four fries
gravy, three hand drums, two cups of coffee, and an ordered greasy gear. On the tenth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me ten toy Indians, nine ladies singing, eight braids of seagrass, seven wives of cooking, six Indian tacos, five golden leaves, four fries and gravy, three hand drums, two Cups of coffee and a northern greasy bee. On the eleventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me eleven blank tapes, ten toy Indians, nine ladies singing, eight braids of sweet grass, seven wives are cooking, six Indian tacos, five golden leaves, four fries and gravy, three hand drums, two cups of coffee and a northern greasy My true love sent to me Twelve drumsticks, eleven blank tapes Ten toy Indians, nine ladies singing Eight braids of sweetgrass, seven wives of cooking Six Indian tacos Five golden leaves Four fries and gravy, three hand drums Two cups of coffee and a northern Oh, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. It's Jay Stongo. Legabas G, welcome to Skoden Cinema's very first ho, ho, holiday-themed episode. Yeah, you just heard the 12 Days of Vinden Christmas by the drum group uh, War Scout. And that is from their album called Red Christmas. And that is available on iTunes for download, so go check it out, eh? Uh, I am not uh, anywhere close to being a fluent speaker, trust me. But is it just me, or do you guys uh, ever get tired of people asking um, how to say things like Merry Christmas or Happy Birthday uh, and things like that in, uh, in your native languages? Uh, maybe I'm alone here. I don't know. But uh, I'm just going to say this now um, for all the non-native speakers. Uh, we, we don't have words like that in our language. Uh, you got to remember that those things um, um, are Eurocentric celebrations. And um, traditionally, um, they weren't even introduced to native cultures until much, much later. So uh, stop asking. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, you know, seriously, uh, asking questions is how we learn from one another. And that's, you know, really what it's all about. But I'm excited to bring you this episode, uh, because, uh, we're talking today about, uh, uh, Powwow Highway, 1989's Powwow Highway. And this is a movie that had, uh, a, a big impact on me, uh, when I first saw it. And I actually came in very late to the game, uh, on this one. But uh, I'm, I'm a very uh, seasonal movie watcher. Uh, you know, like I said, I think I've said it in a previous podcast, 
you know, for, you know, Halloween time, you always want to watch, you know, scary movies. I watch scary movies any, any time of the year, but especially uh, during Halloween time. And uh, Christmas time, obviously, you know, you get the Christmas movies out there, uh, uh, you know, New Year's Day. I, I always watch Rocky because the fight took place on New Year's Day, the big fight. And then, like, you know, uh, Easter. Oh, for uh, uh, Valentine's Day, I always watch True Romance, the old uh, Tony Scott, uh, Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette movie. Uh, Easter, we always watch uh, Passion of the Christ. Uh, I mean, just it goes on and on, obviously. But uh, I had a lot of trouble finding a native-themed Christmas movie. And... Uh, Powwow Highway kind of fits that bill. It is a loosely themed Christmas movie, and uh, I do mean loosely. But growing up, uh, you know, we'd always go to powwows whenever we could, and whether they were being held in uh, high school gymnasiums like you see in the movie, uh, or at the old Expo Square Pavilion in Tulsa, or Mohawk Park. Uh, the National Guard Armory near the fairgrounds, uh, rodeo grounds near Kuita or Skyatuk, uh, you know, powwow grounds that you can only find by sticking your head out the window and carefully listening for the sound of the drum or maybe the smell of fry bread, uh, Red Earth at the old Ford Center in Oklahoma City. But no matter what powwow I was at, uh, it seems that this movie was constantly following me around for years. The problem was that whenever I saw it, um, it would always be marked up like ridiculously high. And I would kind of go up to the vendors and, uh, you know, peddling their wares, I, uh, so to speak. And, you know, there's always that one vendor that, that has movies and, and CDs and things like that. And there it'd be, Velcroed on, on pegboard between, you know, like, Trail of Tears documentaries or I Will Fight No More Forever, uh, instructional flute videos, and there's always Dances with Wolves up there. But there it'd be. I'd see Powwow Highway um, with its eye-catching cover art, and it was just blaring out at me um, like a beacon of light. And being a broke high school kid and, and later a broke college kid, you know, I could just never really summon the courage to pull the trigger on a $50 VHS copy of a movie. And uh, trust me, that was about the cheapest I ever saw it because, you know, some powwows you'd go to, the thing would be $79.80 bucks a pop. But because of that, um, I always felt that this movie had like a, a mystical allure. Like it was the secret movie made only for Indians. And, you know, I, at the time I had no idea that it was in, even based on a book. I mean, this is before the internet, mind you. And all my movie knowledge just came from going to the movies um, or reading uh, issues of Film Threat magazine or, or uh, Fangoria or, you know, even Entertainment Weekly. But I could never find any information on this particular movie. And because of that, I mean, it just made me want to see it even that much more. And uh, in the mid-90s, I was totally into independent films, uh, probably like 93, 94. And we had a movie theater here in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Movies 8. And I don't know if there's any Tulsans out there listening that remembers Movies 8. But uh, occasionally they would, they would show independent films. Uh, I remember seeing Basquiat there, and I saw Train Spotting there, and I saw Goodwill Hunting, I saw Ed Wood. 
uh, Pulp Fiction played there. Uh, Pecker, the John Waters Pecker. And Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And I do definitely remember seeing smoke signals there, too. But next door to the theater, um, there was this used media shop called Vintage Stock. And back then, Vintage Stock was much different. It mainly had um, CDs, it had cassette tapes, it had VHS, but mainly it had books. It was just tons and tons of books. But I usually try to go to the, the movies a little bit early so I could always hit that shop before the movie started. And one day I was searching through all of uh, the punk rock CDs and, or, or cassettes, and that's when my dream finally came true because I saw a used VHS copy of Pow Wow Highway. And not only that, these idiots had it marked for $10. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I mean, I had anxiety just holding that film in my hand. And I kind of laughed at myself because I thought, how dumb these workers must be. I mean, this thing is worth a fortune on the red market, and they have no idea. And I couldn't wait uh, to get it home and watch it. And when I got home that night, I threw it in that top loader. And watching this movie just lit a fire within my heart. And um, it was one of those movies that kind of is inspiring because it made me want to make movies myself. Uh, the biggest problem I have about this movie, however, is that still to this day, um, it's almost impossible to find. You can't see it anywhere. It's not available on any streaming platform that I know of. It's not on Amazon. It's not on Blu-ray. It's not on YouTube. It's not on Hulu. It's not on Netflix. Um, the only copies I have are the, these two copies. Uh, one, this old wore out one that I bought, that Faithful Night in Tulsa on VHS. But I also have a copy on DVD that I found for a reasonable price on eBay. So if you want to check it out, um, go to eBay, because honestly, that's the only place I've seen it. And um, right now, I think there's a copy on eBay that's available for $25. And believe me, that's a steal. So I wish anyone out there digging in the wild, you know, big blessings on your hunt. You know, perhaps the movie gods may just shine on ye yet. Let's get into specifics. Pow Wow Highway, 1989. I have two copies here, and there's no tagline on either the VHS copy or the DVD copy. So right now I'm just going to say no tagline. But this movie stars uh, A. Martinez as Buddy Redbow. He is a Mexican and Apache on his father's side and Blackfeet on his mother's side. His other credits? What can I possibly say about this guy? I mean, we would literally be here for at least an hour listing all the film credits that he has. He got his early start way back in 1968, though, in television. And his credits include Mission Impossible, Ironside, Adam-12, Mannix, Bonanza, Hawaii Five-0, Kung Fu, Columbo, Beretta, The Incredible Hulk, BJ and the Bear, Barney Miller, Chips, Fantasy Island, Falcon Crest, L.A. Law, General Hospital, CSI, Longmire, Days of Our Lives, One Life to Live. I mean, this guy's worked with, from, with everybody from Elvis to, to John Wayne to Raymond Byrd to Martin Landau to Bruce Dern, Michael Douglas, Christopher Walken. I remember uh, A. Martinez, though, um, as Cimarron in the uh, John Wayne movie, The Cowboys. And, uh, you know, looking this up on uh, Internet Movie Database, looking him up, I had no idea that there was a television series based on that movie. Uh, but that was one of my favorite movies um, growing up, um, was John Wayne's The Cowboys. 
So uh, A. Martinez. Uh, Gary Farmer is, is in this. He plays Filbert. He is from the Cayuga Nation. Uh, again, this guy's a legend, period. But we got to do this. He's been in Police Academy, Miami Vice, Renegades with Kiefer Sutherland and Lou Diamond Phillips, which we will cover eventually. Um, love that movie, Renegades. Uh, Ed and his dead mother, Tales from the Crypt, uh, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man uh, with Johnny Depp. He was in Smoke Signals. He was in Ghost Dog. He was in Skins, Longmire, Blood Quantum, and California Indian. This guy, same thing. He's worked with Johnny Depp. He's worked with both Corey's, Haim, and Feldman. He's worked with Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Tommy Lee Jones, Martin Sheen, Steve Buscemi, Crispin Glover, Graham Greene, Gil Birmingham. This guy's even worked with Iggy Pop. If you think uh, A. Martinez working with uh, Elvis was something, yeah, uh, Gary Farmer's worked with Iggy Pop. That's a mic drop. Uh, and I'm literally just scratching the surface here. Uh, this guy has been around forever. He is a legend. Um, he's an iconic uh, Native American screen legend. Next up is Jonelle Romero. She plays Bonnie Redbow. She is Mescalero Apache, Dene, and Paiute. Other credits, uh, she's an award-winning director and producer of film, television, and new media. Uh, she's the only Native American uh, Native director, producer, writer shortlisted for an Academy Award by the documentary Short Branch in 2000 for her award-winning film American Holocaust. Uh, to this date, it is the only documentary that addresses the American Indian and the Jewish Holocaust. Uh, in 2016, uh, Romero was one of the first Native American actresses invited into the Academy Motion Picture Arts and Scientists uh, in the class of 2016. That same month, she was invited to Washington uh, by President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, and Oprah Winfrey to share her vision and initiatives of Native American women in film. Uh, she has also worked in directing and producing original content for online streaming television and commercial advertising uh, through her company, Red Nation Television Network. Uh, Native is here uh, since 2006 and other uh, ITVS. Uh, Jonelle also is the first uh, American Indian to receive a humanitarian award, um, the Armin T. Wagner Humanitarian Award. Uh, it is giving to projects that have, um, quote, the vision to see the truth and the courage to speak it. Romero's expertise and passion in producing and directing media content centers around her love of storytelling and humanity. Her commitment in the film industry has been consisted in um, having established a career of 43 plus years and still going strong. In 2007, Jonelle was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. So she has a very, very impressive resume. Uh, in 1991, uh, Michael Jackson, he helped uh, launch her production company. And he, uh, Jackson also became a leading force in making her company known to the world. And due to his insight, um, he added her newly founded production company in, in his press interviews uh, in Entertainment Weekly. Uh, she was instrumental in bringing uh, the American Indian dancers to his music video, Black or White. Uh, if you remember that, that, that music video back in the day. 
and uh, she was also able to negotiate for the American Indian dancers to be paid over and above any dancers on any music video ever uh, due to the fact that they were traditionally dressed, that that wardrobe did not come from Western costume. And to date, they are the highest paid dancers in the music video industry. Also, this segment uh, in, the, in the video was also the first clip of the American Indian dancers in the music video without being a Native American music group slash artist. So we could go on and on and on. She has a country band um, that's opened for notable artists like uh, Richard Danko of the band, Chris Christopherson. She's opened up for Rich, uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, Eric Anderson, John Trudell, uh, Ten Machine, Richie Havens, and Roseanne Cash. Uh, she's also produced work in several uh, social justice forms, including American Holocaust, the series, uh, Native Women in Film and Television Initiative, uh, Native Youth Matters, If I Can See It, I Can Be It, Warriors Against AIDS, The Powers of Film, uh, Native Fashion with Social Action, to j just to name a few. And again, that is a mic drop. So how can you possibly follow that? Well, Amanda Weiss... It is your turn. You are up. What's what you got for us? Amanda Weiss plays Rabbit, and she has no tribal affiliation. Other credits for her. I'm just going to get this out of the way because uh, Amanda Weiss, uh, young turtle here, harbored a little crush on her, uh, based slowly uh, solely on her portrayal of Tina in um, the Wes Craven's original Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, she became the very first victim, uh, you know, trivia uh, of Freddy Krueger and the Elm Street kids. Uh, and seeing her inside that body bag uh, in that movie, uh, it both uh, haunted and thrilled me a little bit. Uh, but when she wasn't tingling my heartstrings, um, she was playing in Fast Times at Richmond High, Better Off Dead. She was on Cheers. Okay, I'm going to just skip her because uh, we're going to go down now to Wes Studi. Wes Studi. In his film debut, Wes Studi as the memorable, scene-stealing, buff, Oklahoma's own Wes Studi, the pride of the Cherokee Nation, Wes Studi, honorary Oscar winner, Wes friggin' Studi. Uh, I plan on doing an episode uh, on Geronimo uh, in, a, in the coming months, and so we'll really, really dive more into him then. But to me, hands down, one of the greatest, if not the greatest native actor of all time. Uh, Wes Studi does make his film debut in this movie. He's in it for like maybe two minutes, and um, it is worth the price of admission just to see him in this role. He is awesome. Uh, it is written um, by Janet uh, Haney. Uh, sh she's undetermined. I'm not really sure her tribal affiliation, if she is. And it is based on a novel by David Seals. And David Seals is another kind of one of those controversial um, figures in literature. Um, there has been a lot of debate on whether he is Native American, whether he's not Native American. He con he's kind of a weird guy. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, he's got some really far out um, outlooks on things as far as aliens and spacecraft and uh, all the way from sorcery to uh, mystic beliefs. It's he's a he's a he's an out there dude, man. 
but uh, he claims that he's a Huron and Potawatomi. Uh, again, I, I don't know if that's true. I've heard other uh, things that he's not, um, that he was not a member of AIM or that he was a member of AIM. Again, it's all hearsay. I don't know. But this movie was directed by Jonathan, uh, excuse me, Jonathan Wack, who, again, has no tribal affiliation. His credits, um, surprisingly very few, um, you know, after his success as a producer on that cult film Repo Man, and then this film, you think that he'd really kind of go on to be this major player, but he didn't. Um, he did Mystery Date in 1991, and he directed Ed and His Dead Mother with Steve Buscemi and Gary Farmer in 1993, and then that's it. I have nothing else on him. <laughs> So now we're going to flip over the box here. Uh, I have the DVD release. It's pretty much the same thing on the back of the VHS. But I'm going to go off the DVD release, the box description on the back. And it says here, For the Northern Cheyenne tribe of Lame Deer, Montana, the American dream has taken a grim detour. Here, Buddy Redbow is a committed activist battling a suspicious land grab. Filbert Bono played by, or Filbert, excuse me, I can't ever say that right. Filbert Bono played by Gary Farmer in what Roger Ebert calls one of the most wholly convincing I've ever seen is uh, a serene spiritual warrior guided by sacred visions. But when Buddy's estranged sister is framed and jailed in New Mexico, the two men take Filbert's rust-wrecked 64 Buick War Pony on a road trip that makes some very unexpected stops along the way. Jonathan Wax directs Graham Greene, Wes Studi, and Amanda Weiss in this acclaimed comedy-slash-drama about Native Americans understanding the past, fighting for their future, and discovering some surprising truths along the powwow highway. I told you that this was based on a novel by David Seals, and I actually have that novel, and um, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about the novel as we move along and the main differences between it and the, in the film like I did with Fishhawk. But uh, the back of the novel that I have, it says, Filbert Bono and Buddy Redbird are about to prove that the spirit of the great Cheyenne warriors is still alive and kicking. Their war pony is a burned-out, rusty 64 Buick LeSabre, has left a trail of dust from Montana's Lame Deer Reservation halfway down Interstate 25 towards New Mexico. It's a journey of enlightenment, a quest for greatness, and it just might be one of the wildest, funniest, most outrageous rides you've ever been on. A beer-guzzling, joint-smoking, staggering gallop down the twisting road to self-discovery. So those are the descriptions from both the DVD and the book. Which one do you want to see or read more? Uh, both descriptions are pretty accurate, I will say. Um, it is funny in spots. It's uh, heart-tugging in others. Um, it's thought-provoking. It's uh, anger-inducing. Uh, it's, it's, got, it's got all those things and, and more. But uh, it's, it's an odd film that, like I said, that everybody likes, but nobody's ever really seen it. And it's been labeled many, many different things. It's been labeled a comedy. Um, it's been referred to as a thriller, a buddy movie, a road trip film, a modern western, an action movie, and even a Christmas movie. And what's crazy is that it does indeed fit into all these categories, you know, at least into some small degree. 
This film's shape-shifting is certainly intentional and very effective in taking apart the older stereotypes of Native portrayals, not only in film, but in real life as well. Uh, Jonathan Wax, he directs this masterpiece, and Tomio Michi Karita was the cinematographer. Uh, together, these two created a film that is both beautiful and above all real and natural. The landscape shots uh, in this movie are just spectacular. And that's not, uh, I mean, you, you don't get that from shooting, I mean, well, let me take that back because I'm getting ahead of myself. You only get that when shooting on locations and not in front of green screens. And one internet movie database reviewer noted that the film was shot entirely on location and the set decoration, I suspect, consisted of whatever the camera found in its way. And again, that's uh, one of the uh, most um, alluring and um, impactful um, aspects of this movie is that it does. It feels very, very real. Uh, the so-called sets uh, includes things like poverty, a poverty-stricken reservation, this ratty pool room, a high school gymnasium, a middle-class suburb, as, uh, as well as you know, tons of road shots in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, Lame Deer, Montana, and uh, the Black Hills in South Dakota. But one reason this film was so well received by uh, many Native American audiences is that they recognized all of this, the story, the people, the places, the things. And that is a rare thing in movies, not only from that era, but in movies even today. The two leads uh, are Buddy Redbow. Uh, it changed from Redbird. He's Buddy Redbird in the novel. I'm not sure why. And Philbert, uh, Philbert Bono. Buddy is a NOM vet. He's an AIM member um, who was part of the wounded knee altercation in the 70s. Uh, he is a volatile young man, and he's not shy about expressing his points of view both verbally and physically. Uh, in the book, uh, he's described as a born leader who understood the power of fear, of anger, and of arrogance. Um, despite his flaws, though, uh, Buddy is a very well-respected member of the tribe. Um, even in the film, um, the character of Chief Joseph says that, quote, you know, everybody knows Red Bow's got his own way of doing things, but he's done more for this tribe than anyone, and that's an end quote. And you can't argue with the Miko. Uh, Buddy's way of handling situations is more uh, confrontation. Uh, you just kind of meet it head on. And this overzealousness that he has... Um, you know, he's kind of a, a recognizable type in many Native communities, and um, everybody kind of knows that guy. And like a lot of A members, uh, he is respected by most, but not all of the members in the community. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the other lead, which is Filbert, and he not only steals this entire movie, uh, he is literally the complete opposite of Buddy. Uh, but he's thin and lanky and athletic looking and Filbert is a large man with soft demeanor and features. He is very sincere in his, his quest to becoming a warrior and it almost plays as if he's simple at first but again it's quite the opposite and he's a very very knowledgeable man who has just kind of chosen the old ways. Uh, to put it differently, he's kind of like the traditionalist who chose the way of his ancestors. 
And usually the Hollywood Indian who makes that choice behaves as if he's had like this uh, Randall McMurphy lobotomy and he forgets that he's living in the 20th century. But Filbert um, has no such problems as uh, the film and the story unfold. You really kind of find yourself siding with this uh, gentle, pure nature uh, who's looking for tokens um, when the final credits roll. Uh, Filbert, however, he lives in both worlds, and he chooses to privilege the traditional Cheyenne way, um, though he is misunderstood, and sometimes even laughed at by not only his friends, but the town around, and even his own family members. Um, we'll we'll kind of get to that when he goes to visit Aunt Harriet. But he's on a quest to become a warrior, but not in the same way that Buddy has become one. See, Buddy earned his warrior status by fighting in Nam or Wounded Knee. Filbert wants to achieve uh, a quest to become a warrior in the old way. Um, he's trying to build power uh, throughout the duration of the film. And he's constantly telling me, like, we're gathering power, we're gathering power, we're finding medicine. Uh, by finding four tokens um, also that have special meaning to him and he believes that will aid him in his journey in achieving his warrior name uh, whirlwind dreamer this name fits filbert to a t um, the world of the film goes around in a violent world but filbert constantly remains centered and calm no matter what the movie opens with a shirtless, that's right, shirtless Rodney A. Grant. Uh, he's all warriored up on horseback. Come on, Hokies, you know who Rodney A. Grant is. He was winding his hair in uh, uh, Dances with Wolves. Uh, but anyway, uh, he's all warriored up. He's on a horse, and his braids, his chest plate, his, his feathers are just kind of slowly bouncing along as he gallops bareback across this sepia-toned plains. Uh, clutched in his right hand is a war spear. Uh, he's got his face painted. He's intense. He's concentrated. Just giving this real powerful look like he's ready to throw down, boy. I mean, let's do this. Uh, in. <laughs> but uh, he's like the epitome of a warrior. As he turns the mount uh, towards the camera, the drums and flute of the soundtrack really kick in and then like, boom, like title, Pow Wow Highway. But then it kind of crossfades um, from that gorgeous scenery of the golden grasslands and you're kind of, you know, in this tracking shot of contemporary uh, northern Cheyenne Reservation in Lame Deer, Montana. And what was once like this golden, you know, like I said, prairie uh, has kind of turned into like this very cold and gray, uh, uh, you know, atmosphere. You see brush piles kind of flecked with trash and uh, you know, these ramshackled homes and dilapidated wrecked cars, you know, that are sweeping the once stunning landscape. Uh, kids are busying themselves on like rusted out swing sets. They're drinking Pepsi and, you know, there's trash can fires and res dogs. And all this really sets the cinematic mood for where the story uh, takes place. Day uh, turns to night and we shift from the reservation uh, to the town bar. And uh, the music also conveniently switches from uh, traditional drums and flutes and vocal singing uh, to your more uh, typical mundane, uh, you know, white bread, uh, manufactured hot 90s country rock. And uh, the, the patrons inside uh, are breaking pool balls and probably promises and uh, all the while kind of yee hawing their way to a hangover. 
But this dive is chock full of all age Indians and they're drinking and they're smoking and laughing and just kind of carrying on. And uh, it's kind of probably this locals only place. That's kind of the feel of the, of the joint. It's like this locals only place and it's where outsiders are usually shown the door, probably by the way of boot heels. Uh, in this bar, there's a lanky man and he's bent over this rutted out pool table and he's arrogantly and confidently calling and sinking every shot. Uh, much of the chagrin, uh, of course, to the observers kind of huddled around him. And that man is uh, Buddy Redbow, played by A. Martinez. Uh, he's a nom vet. He's an aim warrior. And you can just tell that he's seen his fair share of action, you know, not only overseas, but on home soil as well. Um, he's the type of figure, uh, like I said earlier, that everybody knows, they like him, they fear him, and they respect him, you know, uh, most people anyway. But he goes in for the kill shot on the, the rutted out green, but uh, he ends up sinking the eight ball, and that's, that's the cue. Time to head out the door. So he gathers up his flannel coat, and he heads out the door. And as he's leaving, he bumps into Filbert, who is just coming in. And Filbert is in the most literal way possible. Uh, he bellies up to the bar and he orders himself a Miller High Life Tallboy. It's the champagne of beers, uh, if you didn't know. But the bartender asks him, you know, hey, do you have a ride to the powwow? You know, Filbert, do you have a, do you have a ride? But his inquiry is just completely ignored. Because Filbert's attention is solely on the white man in like this gift shop headdress hawking used cars on the television screen and filbert is glued to the soft blue images radiating from those tubes as he's entranced by visions of glorious cars the salesman refers to as war ponies we got mustangs we got broncos we got bentos they're hot to trot and ready to roll now folks this old cowboy's on the warpath with eight big savings all our choices stop now, that is the type of cultural appropriation that would immediately tailspin Buddy's brain into level stroke. But Philbert, uh, however, he sees it as a sign. Um, you know, warriors have horses. And to be a warrior, you must have a faithful horse. And he loves the idea of a car being a pony. And so with kind of this haze of smoke encircling his head, he decides right then and there that he must have one. Instead of going to the slick, silver-tongued salesman that he saw on TV, Filbert decides to go to a junkyard set amongst these rusted-out hulks, uh, abandoned in fields of high-grown dead grass. And he tells the man behind the cluttered desk who's perusing a Playboy that um, he says, I want to buy one of your finest ponies. So the man says, like, go ahead and take a look. And through this dirty window, Filbert imagines a herd of horses galloping across the plains. And the camera tracks this gorgeous buckskin pinto and then kind of cuts back to one of the greatest for most forgotten cars in cinematic history forget steve mcqueen's 68 ford mustang gt in bullet uh lose your thoughts about tim burton's batmobile uh, <laughs> this is the perfect car for this movie it is this 
uh, like doo-doo brown, rusted out 64 Buick LeSabre. Uh, the man is stunned when Filbert says, that brown one is a nice one. <laughs> Uh, that's it. That's his steed. And after paying the man in whiskey and, and, and weed or maybe sweet grass and uh, I think possibly food stamps, um, he's handed the keys. Filbert uh, is so proud of himself because he got his pony the old fashioned way by trading for it. And he heads out the door and immediately begins clearing off all the trash and busted springs and, you know, inner tubes and old tires hanging off of it. And uh, he gets in, and after a few rough starts, uh, the pony kind of surges to life, much to the delight of the rotund man inside. But the best part of the scene is uh, before he, he pulls out, uh, Filbert, there's this plastic Virgin Mary that's on the dashboard. But he kind of like snatches it off the, the dashboard. He just tosses it in the weeds, uh, kind of giggling to himself. And he slams the door shut. Um, you know, he, it's like he has to rid the vehicle of any kind of remaining connection to the white man's world before he drives off in this really lumbered pace. But this car, uh, I have to talk about it because it is like the third, it's like a character that, that in the movie that, that no one talks about. It really deserves its own credit, uh, the 64 uh, Buick LeSabre. And in the book, there's this whole chapter dedicated to how it even got into the hands of Filbert Bono. And I'll read that to you really fast because I do kind of feel that it's important. So the chapter in the book is, is titled The Origins of the Sacred Pony. It says, this is the story of a machine and of the people who made a story of its movements and what happened to the machine and its people. For the Indians who passed along the endless wanderings of the Powwow Highway had felt themselves to be a trickle on an ancient river. They were something of a raiding party in the old dilapidated automobile, not unlike a hunting party of the old ones. They came upon the immigrants in a black belching chaos of fear and gasoline and passed along their way like jackrabbits darting past startled drivers on a lonely night. Their eyes flashed like sorcerers in the headlights and then disappeared behind metal and rubber. Lame Deer, the agency village of the northern Cheyenne in Montana, knew the old heap well, but not at first. Rarely had a new vehicle entered upon the traditional lands of the Morning Star people and this Buick was no exception. It had been the proud new steed of a vice president of the Billings Bank and Trust for the first two years of its life. It knew the joys of every rambunctious youth, flush with good health and an integral part of the brand new and very traditional suburb in Billings. The extravagant cream-colored Buick frolicked along the other healthy children of that booming blonde-headed city a proud emblem among emblems of its prosperous neighborhood. If a machine were alive and could be happy, things of which mechanics and inventors are convinced, then this 64 Buick LeSabre had found its destiny. Alas, time is no less cruel unto man-made joys than it is unto the Creator's own fragile framework. Illusions do not dissipate very quickly at first. A piece of rubber insulation fell off the driver's door. It was glued back on. The soap ran out of the automatic window washer. It's easily replaced. But then a tire picked up an imperfection out of the rodeo grounds in blue. As the 12-month guarantee ran out, so did the water pump. The seats began to show wear. The industrious banker cared less to keep the carpets cleaned of Coca-Cola and the dog's muddy footprints. Crayons melted on the dashboard. The front bumper showed suspicious signs of rust. 
The old dreams found replacements. The banker was promoted to senior vice president. He had a larger office now. He was picky about his carpeting. His lovely wife had another baby girl. And it was time to discover new realms, new possibilities, a new car, two new cars, in fact. The Buick was left on the AOK lot, and its family drove off into new frontiers, a 1966 Buick LeSabre and a Mustang convertible. Mobility had fertilized. Independence had offered its outlet unto, white man once, unto the white man once again, as a young girl might have offered herself to the wind. Reed Sizowski, a lonely bachelor from Butte, picked up the 64 buggy on a real deal. New prospects presented themselves to him. Freedom was again a possible route to happiness. Within a, re uh, within a week, he rolled it down Turner Hill, killing himself and the bleach-blonde schoolteacher he had just picked up at the El Dorado Lounge. The Buick then sat for seven months at DeBaca's wreckage uh, yard. After a body shop uh, banged it roughly back into shape, it was stripped of every part it possessed, inside and out, by Fidel DeBaca. It sat naked, a lumpy frame, a body only. Fidel sold the parts to his best customers, mechanics from the garages from around town. Wayne and Reed Garrison took it off Fidel's hands one warm day in June, when school was out for the summer. They lifted the 55 Chevy engine from their recently burned-out 47 Ford Coupe, uh, put in straight pipes, solid lifters, naugahyde seats, racing slicks in the rear, mag hubcaps. They painted it bright red and raked the chassis so that it looked to be perpetually rolling downhill. By August, they had dubbed it the Cherry Showboat. By September, though, the wiring caught fire and Wayne and Reed barely escaped with their lives. It sat once again in DeBacca's for three years after that. No one wanted it. The engine was, uh, the engine and the body had turned brown. The family of, a family of skunks had made a nest in the back seat. It seemed to be the end of the country western hard luck story. It was one down and out machine that nobody could love. Then, one cold and arctic afternoon, the glacial wind blew Manny Bono against the shack of Fidel DeBaca. Manny was on his way to the Purple Orchid, one of many Indian bars huddled among warehouses and wrecking yards and the refuse of every city that no one but Indians and other foolish people who do not understand the 20th century could want. It was the Indian section of town. Man Manny ducked into the shack on the sidewalk, even though Fidel was only a uh, Mexican. Fidel sat by the leaky gas stove, staring unbelievably at a Playboy centerfold. Fidel said, This wind has frozen my butthole shut. I want to buy one of your fine ponies. Uh, Fidel pronounced in his odd Castilian accent, Look around. Manny did not want to look around. It was too cold. He looked out the window to see the brown old Buick sticking out among the demolished pickups and Chryslers. It seemed to call to him as if it was an eagle had shown him the light of this beautiful thing. That's a nice one. Does it run? That? Nah. It has no engine. It has no engine? It has an engine. Tires? No tires. I will go start it up. Miracle of the Valley that shivering day as Manny walked bow-legged among the junk, his crew-cut black hair sweating under his brown straw cowboy hat, his pointed boots ignoring the frozen mud holes. He looked at the huge racing slicks in the rear and the bald black walls in the front. They had air. He sat on the Nagahide seats. They were only uh, a little torn. He had found the key in the ignition. He turned it on, pumped it twice, and it purred gracefully back to life. He drove past Fidel's shack very slowly as to not be seen or heard. Why should he even pay him, a brown white man, after all he had done to him? 
Fidel did not even look out of the grimy window, never expecting to see an Indian with a, gri- a, grin, uh, dri- with a grin driving by or a frantic family of skunks peering out the scent-blackened back window. And that is how the Buick, like so many American dreams, resurrected back into reality and came to the Cheyenne Reservation. It ran without fault for nine years until Nanny traded it to his cousin Filbert in 1978 for two ounces of marijuana and a worthless horse saddle. So that is a little backstory on the 66, uh, or the, the Buick LeSabre uh, in the movie. But next up, we're in a council meeting, and we see this young, brash, well-dressed native representative of the Overdyne Corporation, and his name is Sandy Youngblood, and he's hawking this spiel about renewing uh, the strip mining lease that they have on the land. And he's promising the same old, same old hot air about jobs and more economic growth in the community and optimal use of tribal land resources and all that, you know, gobbledygook. Uh, The council uh, appears to kind of already decided, um, you know, to to continue before this presentation was even given. Uh, When Chief Joseph uh, opens the floor to questions, Buddy Redbow, in the back of the room, of course, he has a couple. Um, he first questions Youngblood's integrity right off the bat. Um, he asks, uh, you know, you know, since they started mining, you know, unemployment has gone up, not down. And he states that 75% of the community lives below the poverty line and that stripping off what uh, is left of their natural resources isn't what's good for the community. It's really, you know, what's good for the corporation. And he finishes it off uh, by saying something to the effect of, you know, this doesn't even feel like America. It feels like we're living in a third world. And so a very passionate uh, plea um, from Buddy. The film then switches locations from the council meeting in Lame Deer to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, there's this Volvo that's driving along this two-lane highway. Inside the Volvo is a young mom, and she's got two kids, and they drive past this patrol car, kind of innocuously uh, sitting behind a billboard. Uh, When she passes the squad car, the cherries are hit, and she's quickly pulled over. Uh, Obviously, the woman questions why she was even pulled over to begin with. Turns out, uh, through some conversation and dialogue, that uh, this is Bonnie Redbow, Buddy's sister, and the car she's driving has no plates on it. Now, in the book, there is a, a chapter that is devoted entirely to this setup. Uh, it gives the reader like the full 10-year backstory that leads up to this moment in the movie. In the book, uh, Bonnie has you know kind of left the reservation and gone off to New York to kind of make something of herself, and she meets this Irish guy and, uh, you know has kids with him and you know he ends up becoming an alcoholic and he he beats her and she kind of escapes to Oklahoma and she meets this woman named Rabbit Lelouch and together they um, began trafficking drugs and it's through her association with Rabbit that she's introduced to like these mafioso types in Kansas City, Missouri. So uh, Bonnie ends up you know marrying one of these mafioso guys kind of in hopes that she'll get her kids back and as luck would have it, the feds have been tailing uh, her and the mafioso guy from, you know, from Austin to Oklahoma City to Santa Fe. Now, while lodging in a hotel one night, the federal agent um, named Lewis uh, removes the license plate and he 
plants a pound of weed under her back seat. And um, in the movie, though, she just kind of pulled over because of the plates. And she's asked to step out of the car and open the trunk. And underneath the spare tire and empty milk cartons, the police kind of find what they're looking for, this big bundle of pot. Um, she immediately calls Buddy, who's busying himself at work because, um, you know, she needs her brother's help. Uh, she needs bail money. She needs a ride back to the res um, because it's believed, you know, in the film that fed the federal government has no jurisdiction over tribal lands. Red boat. I think it came out last year. Oh, I missed it. Who's this? Bonnie? My sister, Bonnie? Buddy. Wait, wait a second, I can't. Busted for what? Oh, hell. Hey, wait a minute, I got no bail money. Bunny, I got no way to get down there. I couldn't leave now, even if I wanted to. What? What the hell you expect? I ain't heard nothing from you for... It's been ten years. What kids? So, yeah, on that clip, you can kind of hear that the relationship is strained at best. And that's because, um, like I said in the book, she kind of leaves the reservation and moves off to New York to, you know, kind of try to make something of herself, leaving behind um, the family and all the Cheyenne ways. And Buddy kind of views her as a, sort of a sellout, uh, so to speak. And so uh, he doesn't even really want to get involved until he hears that she has kids who he doesn't even know that she has kids and that he wants to try to help out but these are the scenes that kind of what set the story in motion and there's like this big corporation who's in cahoots with the so-called feds um, who want this contract renewed so badly that they will go through the trouble of setting up buddy's sister so that Redbow will leave the reservation to help her um, the federal government feels that he wields enough power over the people in the community to kind of sway their vote. And they believe with him out of the picture that they'll be able to continue with the contract of strip mining the land of their resources. Um, aside from the comparison of, of the American dream to American law, um, you know, you know, tongue in cheek, how that's never worked in favor of the native people um you know what the story really is about though um are the two unforgettable characters who are about to go on this road journey because while that's happening filbert is joy riding around the res in uh the war pony that he has now dubbed protector and he's dropping mufflers and, and various other car parts along the way. But he pulls up to Aunt Harriet's house and he goes inside. He flips on a television and he kind of sits down on the couch. And there's some, a few moments of silence, um, but it's kind of broken when he asks her. Aunt Harriet, <laughs> in the old days, how long did it take a warrior to gather medicine? What you do? Find a token in the cracker check box. I had a sign. The time has come for me to gather medicine.
really have a pony. What did the old one say about... Get sick of being asked for good old Indian wisdom. I ain't got none. So get the hell out of here. Disappointed by, you know, not getting the guidance that he was seeking, he kind of gets up and walks towards the door. Uh, recognizing his displeasure, um, Aunt Harriet can't help but kind of goad him a little further. So she calls him back over for one final stab. Hey. Bed, Philbert. Come. Here's a quote from Doll Knife. He once told my great Uncle Benny looks twice. He said, keep your pony out of my garden. Keep your pony out of my garden. <laughs> so he kind of stands there and he's kind of rolling that over in his mind. Um, he seems like he's trying to make some kind of sense to it all, and he's just kind of like, okay, and then he just kind of walks out the door. But uh, meanwhile, uh, Buddy and Chief Joseph are now in uh, the office um, at the cap, uh, off, the cap office, and they're discussing the price of cattle when through the window, uh, Filbert pulls up and his pony is being pelted with snowballs from the kids playing out in the streets. And when Buddy sees Filbert, um, he realizes that he just may have found his ride to Santa Fe. So um, he walks out of the office and um, the chief sort of hands him a stack of money and tells him to you know, bring back the right bulls this time. And Buddy uh, walks out and um, walks over to Filbert and he tells him to you know, roll down the window man and as he does so it like completely falls off in his hands and but he doesn't know what to do with it so he just sort of uh, places it in the back seat and then he kind of walks around um, and he climbs in the passenger seat hey Filbert yeah. we gotta go to Santa Fe Santa Fe New Mexico uh huh you and me. That's right. There's a powwow in Billings. Who gives a shit about that, man? I got a call from my sister. Funny. She's been away so long. She got busted down there. Pigs pull her over. Just like that. Pound a Colombian under the spare. You believe that, man? You got heat in this tank? You got gas money? Over two grand. Cash? You bet. It's from the tribal council to buy bulls. And what the bulls? Don't worry, I'll think of something. I'm the agricultural purchasing agent, goddamn. So what do you say? Can I count on you? Or what? Okay, so this uh, brings up the first of a couple of issues I have um, 
with the movie. Um, in the council scene earlier with Sandy Youngblood, we're presented with the notion that Buddy is one of the few people in the community who's not afraid of kind of flexing his muscle and speaking out and up for the tribe. And that the community trusts that he has their best interest at heart. Yet in this scene, we see him not only manipulating Filbert by kind of, uh, well, using him for a ride and kind of, you know, um, uh, playing to the idea of him, you know, presenting the idea of rescuing Bonnie as like, like a rescue mission. Uh, but he's also kind of manipulating the trust of the community by misusing the tribal funds given to him to purchase bulls. Um, in the book, his plan is kind of further explained other than just like, well, I'll, when we get to Santa Fe, I'll think of something. Um, in the book, he's given a check, and what he's going to do with the check is use it for bail money. And he's going to bail out Bonnie um, with, with that check, and then he's going to purchase bulls with another check. He's hoping that the bail check will bounce and that the uh, bull money will uh, will clear before that because you have to kind of think um, back in these days um, you know checks didn't clear your account automatically like they do now you had about almost a week grace period before the check would clear the bank and I can't tell you how many times I floated checks to buy groceries or gas or something back in the day but that's kind of what his idea is is, is the check's going to bounce and they're going to make it back to the res out of federal jurisdiction um, it's kind of convoluted but f I guess it sort of makes sense um, in this movie. It's at this point, too, that the film kind of switches genres, uh, going from a um, drama to this buddy road trip movie. And we're treated to just some really stunning overhead shots of the beautiful landscapes, the uh, wildlife, and just the community in general. And we see Protector, you know, kind of chugging and belching down the highway with Filbert and Buddy nestled comfortably inside. Uh, they pull into a diner for a quick bite to eat. Um, you know, it's kind of like your typical, you know, roadside diner uh, grease spoon with, uh, you know, complete with like this gum popping waitress. Um, they order their meals and from behind enters a young West Studi. Um, he completely walks in and steals the scene out from underneath uh, Gary Farmer and A. Martinez, which is not an easy thing to do in this movie. Uh, but here he is. He's in his very first movie role, and he's dressed in this awesome, like, sheepskin coat. Um, he's got, like, the starched and steamed black cowboy hat uh, with, like, the silver band around it. Um, he's wearing this powder blue neckerchief like that's tucked inside this western pearl snap shirt and every time he's on screen here i just can't help but smile uh, just even the anticipation of knowing what's about to happen um makes me smile hey what are you doing stop your fucks up to hey, <laughs> what are you doing here bud heading into billings for a little pussy it's Friday night, two weeks from Christmas. Hell, the bars will be crawling with fa la la and horny little elves. <laughs> Who the hell are you kidding, hard on? <laughs> hey, Vilbert, that's your shit box outside? What'd you do, park it under a sprinter? <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
admit a traitor. I can't believe you wrote in that thing, Betty. Hey, Betty. How about you and me going into Billings tonight, huh? In a pig's ass. You bet that Betty. Yeah. Let's do the cook. Now, oh, right. I'll see you around. Okay. Uh, after Studi's unforgiving scene hijacking there, uh, Phil and Buddy um, have a discussion about Filbert's appearance. And um, Buddy tells him, you know, like, uh, if you want to be a warrior, you need to start dressing like a warrior. And again, there's so much hilarity here um, from Filbert talking with his mouth full of cheeseburger and Buddy kind of uh, misunderstanding, wondering if he's speaking Cheyenne. Uh, to the way that he's kind of dressed down by sh the shaming of his old ways because the pony doesn't have an AM radio. Again, it's just completely perfect here. Silbert. Yeah, let's I'm really worried about you. About what? I'm concerned with your appearance. If you want to be a warrior, you got to dress right. That's That's an essential part of the ritual. What can I do for buckskin? Huh? That Cheyenne? I got no bread for buckskin. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, maybe we could, uh, we could work something out. What about your pony? Uh -huh. Yeah. Looks like shit. Rides like shit. It sounds... We don't have no music in the thing. Pony like that? What can you say? Ain't prepared for battle, that's for sure. Don't even have a goddamn AM radio. The shaming obviously works because now we're inside the hi-fi hut at night and the two buddies are perusing the sales floor uh, looking for a stereo. Uh, the salesman uh, leads the way and uh, quickly begins to kind of give him a speech that he's rattled off verbatim so many times that it's practically memorized by now. It's like uh, Panasonic AM, FM, in-dash, auto-reverse. You got Dolby Sound and graphic equalizer. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. But uh, Filbert obviously knows that they're out of their price range, but he's never one to get discouraged. Um, they begin kind of wandering around, and they're turning knobs, and they're punching buttons, just trying to, you know, trying out all the different stereos on the display wall of sound. Um, the salesman is annoyed, and he kind of picks up a little portable pink boombox, and he goes, like, maybe this is more your speed. And that just perturbs uh, Buddy, just at the mere thought that they don't have money. Um... Buddy pulls the three most expensive items off the wall and demands the salesman to install it now. And uh, the salesman kind of retorts that, uh, you know, this is our most top-of-the-line stuff. Uh, there's no you-get-em-deal on it, Chief. And, and Buddy, you know, he's ready to fight. Um, he's swallowing hard, and he grits his back teeth, and he just gives a, a real junkyard mad dog stare that would just cut through the salesman's soul. He's like, put the speakers and the radio in now. And, and, and like Filbert just kind of innocently, innocently like hands the keys over to protect her to him. But uh, after the equipment is installed, uh, both men excitedly like climb in, ready to rock through the road trip. Filbert uh, fires up the car, but the radio isn't working. And no matter how many buttons Buddy mashes and crushes, he just can't get it to fire up. So he starts getting frustrated, and that frustration kind of turns to anger. 
and um, he is kind of pushing buttons even more frantically now. But he hits this button and the detaches the faceplate. I don't know if you guys remember those kind of radios, and it falls off in his hand. Um, he thinks that he broke it, um, or that it was cheap, uh, or it's incorrectly installed, and that just that's a, that's too much for him to handle because he just flies out of the car. And he starts uh, walking inside the radio shack and starts accosting the workers inside. He's like yelling and screaming and he's like throwing things around and like a bull in a china shop. Um, Filbert, meanwhile, he, he's in the driver's seat and he's just kind of calmly like, you know, thumbing through the owner's manual. And you can kind of see he has this light bulb moment and he gently like pushes the power button and the radio screams to life. And he's very pleased and proud of himself for figuring it out. And he kind of starts slowly banging his head. And the fabulous Thunderbirds can't tear it up, comes blaring through the speakers. And Filbert's kind of bopping his head along, smiling, you know, completely unaware that that buddy is in full fist fight with the clerk inside the store. Um, the commotion um, of a hatchet kind of bustled, you know, busting out through the storefront window um, pulls Filbert out of his own personal front seat concert. And uh, he slams the car into reverse, kind of whipping around and picking up Buddy just as he's uh, leaping um, um, out out of the window, the broken window. And Buddy kind of starts running down uh, the street. Uh, seeing that happen, Filbert kind of slams it into drive and kind of peels out. And Buddy hurls himself inside Protector. And just as that happens, the clerk inside the store um, begins popping off rounds at the fleeing men. And uh, the final touch to this scene I think is awesome is, is Filbert's got his cowboy hat off and he's kind of beating the side of the car door as if it was a horse galloping away. Like This whole thing is just fried gold. Okay, we're going to start wrapping up part one here um, as the movie is just kind of starting to get underway. We have all the uh, principal characters kind of developed. Um, we've got the, the story. We've got the plot of the film. And I think this would be a, a, an excellent place to stop. So, again, uh, appreciate you guys uh, listening in. And uh, we're going to be back here uh, shortly for, for part two uh, of Pow Wow Highway. Mado.